Exploring the intersection of medicine, sports, and pop culture. This is the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. Welcome back to the podcast. Today you'll hear the second part of my discussion with Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz, a cardiologist, an evolutionary biologist, and an expert on the topic of One Health, the idea that the health of humans is intrinsically linked to the health of animals. In today's episode, you'll hear how we can learn about mental illness from animals, and how medical students are now going to the zoos to examine gorillas and meerkats as part of their training. Oh, and we talk about how some cats are hoarders. You're not going to want to miss that. Enjoy! Barbara, some of the examples you're giving in terms of cardiac disease in animals, I find really fascinating. I'm sure one of the other topics that, you know, maybe people have some skepticism about is mental health in, in animals and how that crosses over to human health. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, that I was. OK, so first of all, I, I think that's I think I think everything's the most interesting. So I should not say that. But I do. I have been really captivated by comparative psychopathology now for many years. And actually, the latest book that we wrote, which is called Wildhood, which is really about developmental homology, sort of the idea that that in evolution, you know, we think of homology as, as being sort of, you know, the, the wing of a bird and the arm, right, that, that kind of, uh, we think of physical structures and deep homology and Hox genes. And, but um, it turns out there's also homology between individuals uh, based on the, the stage of life and so that's what, and we, we focused on sort of from puberty to mature adulthood, sort of adolescence. And one of the things that was really interesting um, about that is we know that mental uh, illness is, there are, there are windows of, of vulnerability, right, in our species. So between the ages of like 12 and 21, or depending on what, that if, if you're going to develop a major mental disorder in your life as a human, there's about a, between a 60 and I think 75% chance that it will emerge during that vulnerable window, whether it's major depression, whether it's schizophrenia, whether it's addiction, whether it's ADHD, et cetera. So, so there's, there's something about the neurobiology of that phase of life at, in humans that creates vulnerability. And it turns out that, that, it, that, that there's developmental homology around that vulnerability. But um, that's a fancy way of saying we are not the only species that are vulnerable to a range of mental illnesses. And, you know, I think that that is profound. I think it has, it has, um, it takes me in two major directions. One, I think scientifically, it's really interesting. It's an opportunity to look at comparative genomics um, uh, across species and even, and even within breeds, right? And it's being done. We know that dog breeds, of course, you know, all dogs are Canis familiaris. But there's a huge amount of heterogeneity, right? Think of a dachshund and think of a Great Dane. Um, but it's the heterogeneity extends beyond size. It includes vulnerability to certain forms of mental pathologies. So um, there's a wonderful Finnish study of something like 14,000 dogs and like 200 different breeds and shows the, the, anxiety, the rates of anxiety in this breed or that breed. There are certain breeds of dogs that develop compulsive disorders, you know, this tail chasing, other, um, there's a Doberman f flank sucking where they develop a compulsive, they, they just, they, they sort of turn their head around and they suck their, it's compulsive, compulsive behavior, like a stereotypy. So we can learn about science. 
we can, you know, which is great. But the other big takeaway, I think, um, by just becoming aware that mental health and mental illness are um, this continuum that exists outside of Homo sapiens, is that I think it, it has the potential to help move us from such a stigmatized view of mental illness to a more sort of scientific, biologically open, um, just a, a less stigmatized, more empathic way of, of understanding it. And and I, I, I deeply think there's an opportunity there. I'm not sure that I know how yet to connect the dots between the fact of mental health, mental illness in other animals and, and, and moving to destigmatize, but I'm, I'm working on it. And I work with hundreds of students every year to, um, and I challenge them to think about this. Uh, but, but the shame that so many that, you know, the shame that so many human beings continue to have around mental illness. I mean, we all know this as physicians. I think it was, it was either Steve Hyman or Tom Insull. It was one of the directors of NIMH who, um, identified, I mean, that's stigma as the, the leading cause, I think the quote was, of the leading impediment to rapid advancement in the field of mental health continues to be stigma. So anyway, psychopathology in, and by the way, not just mental illness, but the idea that individuals over the life course can have phases of mental some better mental health and less mental health, and that it's a brain disease. And so, when you see um, when you see an encep- when you see a lion who's got um, encephalitis and is ataxic and is behaving in an, an abnormal way, interacting in an abnormal way, right? You'll you would see that, and you would say, okay, that's that's a form of, of that's a form of mental illness in a way. It's a brain disease, um, but the reaction in an animal is different than maybe if you saw the same exact phenomenon in a human. And uh, so I, I'm, you know, some of the compulsive disorders also, um, some of these dogs who have compulsive overeating, right? These, um, there's a, the POMC, you know, G, the Labradors who have this mutation and they're really food responsive which, and they become pretty obese. And, and my students, you know, I have, I, but at Harvard and at UCLA, I, I teach hundreds of undergrads, and I show um, sometimes I show a picture of um, uh, you know from the back of a obese dog and an obese human, and we have a moment, and it really becomes a conversation about um, about stigma, about obesity stigma, about um, preconception bias. So I've rambled yet again, but I think it's. Uh, there's a really big opportunity um, scientifically and and socially around. I think it's really interesting. I mean, what my takeaway is, is not only does this one health concept influence, you know, studying the pathology, the pathophysiology of specific diseases, but like you're talking about with mental health and other things, eliminating the stigma, that certainly was not uh, an aspect of it that I thought was going to come into play in learning about this field. Yeah, people are, I mean, you know, for some reason, I, I think people are more compassionate about psychopathology in other species and humans. And um, I mean, and, and I and I show these. I show one of the things we do. Their hoarding behavior is really common in wild animals, right? So you see 
Um, you know, hoarding is a survival strategy in the wild. And if animals have access to surplus, they, and this is seen in, in across many lineages where, whether it's storing um, acorns, right, in a granary, like a wood, woodpeckers do over the course of like generations, they have these trees that are packed or, or red squirrels who bury the, the acorns or badgers who, I mean, so hoarding food is, is a, you know, well-known strategy and ecologists study it. Um, and certain dogs and cats are hoarders. You know, there are these, there are actually these, these cats that have a mutation where they have a, they have a short uh, limb, they have like short upper limbs and I'm, they're called Stalingrad cats or Munchkin cats. There's some different words for them. I forget the mutation. But one of the behavioral components of this mutation is that they, um, they hoard objects like, um, you know, buttons and color. So you see, so I show video of one of these cats that is hoarding and a dog that has, you, the, you go, look under the bed, the duff, dust ruffle and there, there's all of this stuff from the house that the dog has collected and is hidden. And then um, I show the video and you hear the students going, oh, oh, you know, and then I show um, 20 seconds of that I, I, I am not a fan of that show, the show, but there's the show Hoarders. I show hoarding behavior in human. And and I ask, and the students have to write out like what, what their emotional reaction was to both. And you can probably predict what it was. Now, why is that? And it's not that easy of a question to answer. Like, why should one thing activate just, you're charmed by it, you want to protect, you're just, you're, your blood pressure goes down when you see that dog and just you know looking at you with the big eyes and then you see this human being and there's revulsion and there's um so yeah i think there's an opportunity to really um penetrate this issue and and you know open eyes talking but about opportunities you alluded a few times to your work with medical students and from what I'm gathering, it seems to be a changing landscape in terms of incorporating this concept and the, the concepts that you've described into medical education. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the work that you do and, and where you envision this continuing to be incorporated into medical education? Yeah, so I mean, first of all, what I really do is now is, is called evolutionary medicine. So I've pivoted from, I mean, the, the origin story was learning about, learning about disease in non-human animals and then asking, why, right? So, um, and and really, why is the fundamental question of, of evolutionary biology? And so, but we we haven't typically applied it to to medicine, right? When when a patient asks you in the ER, they say, "Well, why did my husband have this heart attack?" The typical answer that we give is, "Well, you know, um, you might talk about the risk factors. You might talk about his untreated hypertension or his, you know, um, nicotine addiction." Um, or you might talk about developmental issues related to, you know, atherosclerosis. But what you wouldn't do, we don't typically do, is to say, well, it turns out um, vulnerability to atherosclerosis, you know, we see it across chordates, and it emerged as part of an evolutionary tr series of trade-offs, you know, obviously for all kinds of reasons, we don't, we don't say that clinically, but it's not even the way that we've been thinking. And so what I do in my um, research and in my teaching is to really ask the, you know, ask why, like, why are we vulnerable to fill in the blank and then to look at genomics and look at evolution 
you know, look at the evolutionary pressures that shaped our physiology. Um, so with med students, a lot of what is happening in, and, and this is happening at a number of med schools. I don't know, I don't know what percentage are, but courses at which are looking at evolution. And of course, evolution was added to the MCAT. This was about a decade ago or so. It was the result of this um, group of people who are part of our community um, kind of recognizing that, including some deans of some medical schools, recognizing that, you know, um, uh, Theodosius Dobzhansky said, um, nothing in biology makes sense outside the light of evolution. And, you know, medicine is biology. So, um, so they realized that if you were going to kind of bring the insights that could, um, that could, that might emerge by applying an evolutionary lens, you had to make sure that your doc, that your physicians in training knew evolution. So, so that's happening in med school um, around evolution. Personally, I think you can accelerate insight and innovation by that perspective's good, but the comparative perspective, that is the animal piece, is it just instantly supercharges learning and research. So I teach a course, so I'm launching, um, I prepared it before the pandemic, but Harvard will, at HMS will have our first selective uh, comparative medicine, sort of ubiquity selective in a few months where um, it's divided in four weeks and they'll do a week of, we'll do cardiology, of course. So we'll um, hopefully have a chance to observe a, an, an equine cardio version. We'll um, participate in, you know, some echo, we'll do a bunch of echo on, um, you know, Cavalier King Charles Spaniels who have mitral valve prolapse and we'll hopefully see some congenital stuff. We'll look at a lot of EKGs. Um, so cardiology will, we're, will be, you know, very exciting and dense. And then we're going to do, um, we'll spend time at a cancer, uh, cancer hospital uh, outpatient facility. We'll talk a lot about the most common, um, the most common cancers, some of the most common, including osteosarcoma, which, you know, in, in our species, we typically think of with teenagers, but very common in larger breed dogs. And the natural history of disease is really similar. Uh, melanoma, lymphoma. And then we're going to do a, a bunch of other, uh, we're going to do, I, I have a, a, a program I've started called Female Health Across the Tree of Life. So we'll be looking at lactation and um, insights from dairy veterinarians who know so much about everything from the letdown reflex to preventing mastitis. And then the, um, the part that I'm looking forward to the most at this point is going to be the comparative psychopathology, where we're going to be working closely with some of the top veterinary behaviorists in the world um, who will come, come to the class on Zoom, and, um, and we're going to be in clinics um, encountering animals who have anxiety disorders, compulsive disorders, who are on, some are on SSRIs, um, others are getting different kinds of interventions. So uh, self-injuring animals. So that is, um, that's my, my beta month that was coming up and we'll see how that goes. Uh, and if it's successful, then I'll, you know, I've got friends, you know, all around in different places and I'll share the syllabus and I'm happy to share with anyone who's listening, who wants to teach a course, you know, what worked and what didn't work. 
I was going to say, I think there's going to be a lot of med students in our audience who are going to say, we want this course at our medical school. It sounds like a really, really interesting and fascinating endeavor. And Barbara, as we start to wind down, I want to ask you to look ahead 10, 20 years from now. Where do you envision the field of you know the intersection between animal health and human health going? Where do you envision your research going and uh, you know your career going in this field. Yeah, those are those are three big questions. Let me just let me tackle the the, the last one or the last two. They're just, I mean, this is going to sound obvious, but it still is the most important thing we can be talking about, which is um, the health of our planet, which is going to determine the health of everything that happens to be um, living, you know, on it. And and so, um, I kind of feel like. The um, there's a real opportunity right now to embrace more of a one health approach and the planetary health approach, because it is if you if you really um, internalize the message and and it 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 changes uh, it changes your decision making. And it uh, so so I think what's going to be in 10 years professionally is going to be a function of what's happening in the world. I, I do think that I mean, my research right now is very much focused on something we didn't talk about, which is um, thinking about biodiversity um, in in a medical context. So that we think about biodiversity sometimes, you know, my we think about it's sort of a picture of a of a rainforest, and you sort of see, you know, you, but biodiversity includes all of the diverse physiologies that have evolved in other species, right? So we humans are two hundred thousand years old as a species. Um, we share a common ancestor with our with chimps six to seven million years um, ago and mammals 200 million years ago. But the fact is, life on Earth started 3.6 billion years ago, right? So there's just all, and evolution is this innovation process, right? It's this, it's this kind of massive, hyper-iterative research and development process, right? You have variation and, and then you have variation on top of variation and then selection and every so if we think about physiology as biodiversity that means that in the world among the 8.7 million other species there may be physiologies that have solved problems that we can't and that if evolution is the ultimate problem solver it's the ultimate solver of of finding the optimized um you know kind of then we need to appreciate that that's contained within biodiversity. And as physicians and as biomedical investigators, you know, we can do what folks in, in, you know, engineers have been doing now, which is biomimicry. We can go into nature, we can see what works. And all of that's great and wonderful because we want to save human lives. That's what we are, you know, pledged to do as physicians. But ultimately, the bigger message is that we have um, we're in a position as physicians to recognize the value, the the invaluable um, bio, the value of biodiversity, and it's 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 critical importance to human health and animal health. So, in my mind, when I think about the future and my own work, it's very much about um, turning lights on and um, introducing colleagues like you and other physicians who care about. Um, their patients, but also, you know, the future and the larger world too, ways in which we can understand the world and then, you know, be better doctors and be better citizens as a result of it, something like that. And that's what we're all aiming to do as physicians, as, you know, humans of the world. 
And my final question to you, Barbara, is one that we ask of all of our guests. For those in our audience who may be interested in getting involved in the things that you do, whether that's medicine, whether that's evolutionary medicine, whether that's One Health, what advice do you have for them? You know, there's a million ways of doing this. I mean, I um, fortunately, I think in general, um, most of the veterinarians that I've worked with have been very receptive to um, collaborations which feel collaborative and are respectful and, you know, and I think people know, you know, that what, what it is and it isn't. And, um, if, if, if they're having, if they want to kind of be more involved with, um, evolutionary medicine, they should go to, um, our website for, I say our, cause I just, I was president for the last two years of the society, but, um, international society for evolution, medicine, and public health, lots of activities there. We um, love having physicians as part of that. And then finally, um, I am happy to help and I do this all the time, um, you know, med students, physicians, um, administrators develop ideas for developing um, programs, uh, classes, initiatives to, you know, promote knowledge exchange across human veterinary medicine and evolutionary biology. Uh, the great news is it's pretty wide open and it's um, endlessly interesting. And my experience is that there are certain, that a lot of physicians really love evolution and, um, really just um, find it exciting to um, use the tools, evolutionary principles to connect dots that then circle back to what, what they're doing in the hospital um, or at the bedside. Barbara, this has been really fascinating, really eye-opening for me. Admittedly, I didn't know a lot about this field a few months ago before reading more about it. I find it really interesting. I think as you, you've spoken about over the last 45 minutes or so, really holds a lot of promise in terms of you know pushing us forward in our understanding of disease and the way we approach disease. So Dr. Nesson Horowitz, thanks for joining us on the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Oh, it's been really fun. Great to meet you. What an interesting topic. I encourage everyone to read more about One Health. It honestly was something I had never heard about, and now I'm pretty fascinated by it. In listening back to my conversation with Dr. Natterson Horowitz, I have a few takeaways. Number one, I find the asymmetry of involvement in the One Health concept, how vets are much more engaged in it than physicians, quite intriguing. Is it as Dr. Natterson Horowitz hypothesized that physicians have a superiority complex? Might be part of it, but I'm not sure that's all there is to it. I have to imagine, though, that there is a healthy amount of skepticism from the physician community in terms of just believing the One Health concept. Some critics of One Health have made the argument that the process of evolution has resulted in species being so different due to mutations, due to the way that genes are regulated and expressed, and even though there are some parallels between certain traits in animals and those in humans, the way that those traits have evolved over time in the different species may limit what we can learn about one from studying the other. My second takeaway is a discussion about mental health, particularly the stigma around the topic and how the One Health concept may help end that stigma. Over the last five years or so, we've really taken steps forward in acknowledging the importance of mental health, and I wonder how much more progress we can make if we utilize the One Health concepts that we talked about in my discussion. That is, if we recognize that even animals experience mental health as part of our biology, it might help to eliminate the stigma that some people still hold around the topic. My final takeaway, and it's more of a thought actually, is that I wish I could have done a rotation at the zoo during my medical school training. 
There's a notable reflection piece in JAMA from a few years ago by Dr. Gilad Evroni. In the article, he discusses doing fetal ultrasounds on a pregnant gorilla. He talks about caring for a meerkat who is in heart failure. I mean, aside from all the things that we could learn about animals, the fact that medical students are having the experience of learning medicine hands-on at the zoo is pretty exciting. And I'm not gonna lie, I'm a little jealous. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to share it with your friends and family. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors Are People 2 Podcast. Do you have a question or a comment on the show? Maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next time, this has been the Doctors Are People 2 Podcast. Take care.